You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, April 28, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory Group. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Ash, for having me. Peter, obviously an incredibly busy day uh, in markets and macro today. Uh, looking out here, it looks like the NASDAQ is up over 3% uh, on the day, closing down here at 12,871. Uh, everything up, lots of green on the screen. S&P 500 up about 2.5%, closing out at around uh, 4,300, 4,287. Uh, and Dow Jones, also industrial average, also up 1.85%. Peter, a lot happening, lots of moving parts. What's your big picture? How are you thinking about this at the 50,000-foot level? Well, I, I went to sleep Monday night, and I just woke up, and uh, the S&P is at the same level. So I'm wondering <laughs> if there's anything going on. Uh, I, I think the, the market is, is right now trying to get through earnings and not just seeing what companies are doing relative to the expectations uh, embedded in, in in the stocks, but also trying to figure out wh wh where is the U.S. economy, where is the global economy uh, from here, and I, I think that the, uh, the 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 level of unknowns is why we're seeing such huge moves. On top of, of course, this monetary and interest rate noose that is slowly tightening around everything. Uh, now, of course, going into today with the Facebook move, uh, obviously expectations were very low going into the print. The stock was trading at 13 times earnings going in, so that there was room for uh, uh, a readjustment higher. But I, I think all in all, um, it's just really churn, and it's churn with with lower highs, and the market trying to uh, trying to hold its stance against the. February and March lows. Uh, my sense of, of earnings so far, uh, you know, to tie it into this this what's going on this this week and the week before, after listening to a lot of conference calls and and reading through transcripts, is, you know, obviously there's a lot of fear out there about the economy and everything, and, and consumer confidence is is and, and multi-decade lows, uh, or actually probably back to where we were in 09, but from what I'm hearing from companies is that the U.S. consumer, notwithstanding the inflation pressures and, and all the, the worries, uh, it's still hanging in there. But the question is, is, for how much longer can it? And if you look at a big-ticket item like selling cars, uh, Ford and GM said that there's very little demand destruction seen from historically high prices and now rising uh, funding costs. Uh, but, you know, you listen to the CEO of Coca-Cola, who is selling a product that costs a dollar. Um, maybe if you buy Powerade or one of the other drinks, it costs you 2 or $3. So we're not talking about big-ticket items here. And he's, he's wondering whether we're now pushing up against the limits of how much they can raise prices without hurting demand. 
you know, getting into this whole debate about elasticity when it comes to products. And I do think we're, we're getting close to bumping up against it. And it's interesting when you look at also but there's been this idea of bumping up against the limit uh, of, of pricing power with what we're seeing right now with inflation and with consumers able to, to deal with that uh, capacity. Right. And, and, and I, I do think we're, we're now just beginning to test it. And um, from listening to CEOs, they're, they're still OK with today. They're still OK with how the first quarter went in terms of demand and even the first month of Q2. And they're obviously hoping that that continues, but there's definitely acknowledgement that we're unsure how much it can continue. Uh, right. I also read the Meritage Homes to get into the housing industry, since that's also a, a big focus here, particularly with the, the sharp rise in mortgage rates and record high prices. Uh, their business in Q1 was good, solid demand. But they're even acknowledging that it's unsustainable. You can't have 20% home price gains and now mortgage rates that are up 150 basis points in a short period of time and expect that business just to continue. Uh, if you look at the last couple of weeks, we've got regional manufacturing surveys from New York, Richmond, Philly, and Dallas. April was okay, but the six-month business outlook fell sharply. And I think it was New York that fell to the lowest level since um, 2000 and uh, March 2020. So there is definite hesitancy about what is to come, even though CEOs today haven't necessarily seen it yet. Yeah. So much to unpack there. Uh, by the way, you mentioned Facebook meta platforms uh, up on the day, 17 spots, 6%, closing around 205 off fractionally here in after hours trading. Uh, Peter, I started my day today earlier reading the book report with Peter Bookvar, where you unpack some of the data that we got from GDP, from the BEA report out this morning. Obviously, uh, an interesting report, things moving in every direction, it seemed. Uh, overall aggregate contraction, 1.5% quarter over quarter, uh, after being up almost 7%, 6.9 in Q4 21. The estimate was for a 1% increase. Obviously, we didn't get that. And yet, strong consumer demand. Talk to us a little bit about this paradox and what it means. You also point out in the report uh, the GDP deflator impact in addition to trade imbalance. Right. So the, the perspective for Q1 was a 6.9% increase in Q4. And so that was the tough comparison that we ran up against, where inventories in Q4 added, I think it was 530 basis points of the six point not of the 690. So in Q1, we had some reversal uh, on the inventory side. So inventories were drag, but the biggest drag was trade and the, the very large trade deficit uh, with imports rising much faster than exports right. took off over 300 basis points from the, the GDP figure. And the tip off to that was yesterday when we saw uh, the depth, trade deficit for goods that was expected to be $105 billion came in at $125 billion, uh, a fresh record high. And we can also tie that into the dollar, considering what's going on with the dollar here right. uh, after this. But as you said, the consumer and capital spending is what kept Q1 um, from being worse. And in terms of the deflator, right. that took off eight-tenths. 
uh, because the expectations were for a price deflator of 7.2, came in at 8 percent. So if the deflator was in line, that contraction would have been six-tenths uh, instead of um, 1.4. And also, government spending took off a little bit. Uh, so the question is, OK, what happens with Q2? Right. And I do think trade will still be a drag. Uh, I think we can definitely uh, debate and, and, and understand the possibility that China is going to see negative growth in, in Q2, uh, second biggest economy. Europe is very possibly in a recession uh, in, in, in the second quarter. And so the trade side should be a drag. Uh, capital spending could be okay again, and consumer spending should still be a positive. So we should see a positive number in front of Q2 GDP. But I think Q3, Q, Q4, the risks are rising that we start to see negative numbers again. And, and that really is the bottom line with the U.S. economy is, and getting to what we talked about in the beginning, is we're, we're, getting, we're approaching the breaking point of the consumer saying no mas with right. these price increases relative to my wage gains. Hasn't happened yet, but I think we're progressing towards that, that breaking point. And it may so not Peter, happen in Q2, but Q3, I think, is very likely. The $10 trillion question here, how will we know when we begin to cross that threshold? What will be the early warning signs that are going to flash on the dashboard that will give us this sense that we won't be able to see this continued growth with consumers getting priced out of markets? Well, I'll take you back to 2008. When the, the economy started to roll over, everyone started getting worried about Bear going under and Lehman going under. Yeah. And then Pepsi said, we're seeing a slowdown in sales. And they're selling, you know, getting back to Coke, potato chips, Doritos, and soft drinks. And if that low ticket item, low price ticket item, starts to get impacted by consumer spending, then you know we have a bigger problem. So, yeah. as I mentioned, Coke feels like we're getting close to the limits at which consumers will accept further price increases, even though we're not there yet. If all of a sudden uh, you start to see the trade downs from some of these brands to more to private label, uh, then we should start to worry because global trade, that's going to contract again. Capital spending, well, it'll hold up as long as cash flows hold up. Right. And that's an important thing, too, because big companies, they can continue on with their capital spending plans because they're more insulated from a cash flow perspective. But small, medium-sized businesses are seeing crimson cash flow. They're seeing falls in profit margins. So I don't know how much longer we can go at these capital spending levels. Um, but it still comes down to the consumer. That's most of the U.S. economy. Right. And it'll come down to housing and autos, with those being the two most uh, interest rate-sensitive big-ticket items out there. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's about 70 percent of GDP uh, is, uh, is, is consumer uh, expenditures. You know, it's interesting, and this is why it's so great to have you here on a day like today, Peter. Uh, you mentioned uh, 2007, the Bear Stearns hedge fund collapse. I remember that period uh, there where folks kind of shrugged it off. Like, why do I care with it? whether the Bear Stearns high-grade structured credit enhanced leveraged fund, that was actually what it was called, uh, collapsed? There was a, a sort of collective shrug. Uh, it seemed immaterial, and then it starts to filter in. Uh, precisely as you say, when it's Coke and Doritos. I think such a powerful metaphor for this question of where we sit right now. I, I think we're, we're, we're headed towards the recession. And that's not really that profound because, well, when the Fed tightens monetary policy, that's where we usually end up. 
you know, a soft landing is a rare occurrence, and I think right now is 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 a pipe dream. I mean, we are on the cusp of experiencing the most aggressive monetary tightening in the post-Volcker world. Right. Where we may see three to four meetings in a row of 50 basis point increases. Now, the last time the Fed raised 50 basis points was in, I think it was 2000, when they raised the Fed funds rate from six to six and a half. And then back in 1994, I think Greenspan raised 75 basis points at one meeting. But those were sort of one-offs. And yeah, the Fed funds rate went from three to six in a short period of time in 94. That was the soft landing. But now um, you, th you have this kind of tightening priced in. Now, it's been priced in already. But then quantitative tightening, where is was going from zero to 95 in three months. When they started the last one in October 2017, it started at a 10 billion a month and went from basically zero to 50 over a 12 month time frame. So this is what I'm referring to, and I did also in 2018, double barreled tightening in right. a very aggressive way. And there is no chance that with that, we see a soft landing. So yeah, the short end of the yield curve, we priced in those rate hikes. What we have not priced in yet is the economic impact of all of this. We have yet, I haven't seen S&P earnings estimates fall one penny for this year. I'm assuming we're gonna go into a recession and there's zero chance we're gonna realize those earnings numbers. Uh, I don't think that earnings estimates really reflect what will be a European recession driven by the spike in energy prices. I don't think we've really modeled in uh, this China slowdown, even though I don't think uh, that these shutdowns will last longer than the next month uh, because it's just humanly unsustainable. Uh, so I, I think that there's a lot to price in in terms of the economic impact of the sharp rise in interest rates and global monetary tightening. And on top of, obviously, in response to this inflation story that is going to begin to bite the consumer. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, by the way, Peter, I'm looking here as we have this show uh, at the streaming comments in YouTube. Uh, I'm seeing this uh, comment coming from, uh, is this it? Amazon misses earnings estimate by 11%. Uh, I'm looking on the Bloomberg terminal. We should probably take a look here and see what's happening uh, right now with Amazon earnings. Boy, there's some interesting things that are coming out. Worldwide shipping costs, uh, jumped 14% uh, over at Amazon this quarter. I mean, this is pretty significant. Any thoughts on this? I know it's a breaking story. I know we're kind of having to play uh, from audibles off the screen as we cover this. Uh, but what are your thoughts on what's happening over Q1 uh, 22 earnings at Amazon? So without even reading the release, we know, okay, let's separate out the two businesses, retail and the AWS. AWS, I'm sure, was fine. But the retail business is a very competitive, low-margin business. Yeah. And Amazon, as much as any company, is subject to rising wage costs and accelerating transportation costs and right. all the supply chain problems. Amazon is smack in the middle. So I have to believe those challenges explains why they missed as badly as they did. Uh, and I'll have to see what they say with AWS. 
With respect to Apple, which I think they report at 430, well, what are they going to say about their business in China? What are they going to say about their business in Europe? I mean, if, if, if all of a sudden you're a European consumer and your, your energy bills just went through the roof, maybe you'll hold on to your current iPhone for you know, a few extra months or quarters. And what are they going to say about the supply chain? They're, they're not immune. I mean, what we learned with Google and what they said about YouTube and those numbers missing and particularly citing a slowdown in Europe, these companies are part of the global economy. They're not immune to what's going on. Uh, and you can be sure there's been a lot of money that's hiding in them thinking that, that they are, but they're not. And um, now they're finally getting around to them. Yeah, uh, very well said. Uh, Pierre, what does it all mean, big picture, as we talk about this and, and we try to digest these earnings? How do you effectively process this new information uh, relative to the, to the big picture thesis that you have on markets? I think what, look at the progression of, of events, and it all starts with a change in monetary policy. So the meme stock craze peaked in February 2021. That was the height of euphoria. And it's no coincidence that four months later, Jay Powell said, we're now thinking about tapering QE. And that was the first step away from the extreme easy monetary policy that started in March 2020. And it is no coincidence that, that the market started to chip away at all those high-flying stocks. Because when the monetary tide changes, valuations all of a sudden matter. So through the end of last year, they clipped all those high flyers in a valuation rethink. In conjunction with, with, with a rate adjustment, we saw obviously rates rise last year. And then this year, when people realized that inflation is not transitory, we had a further rate adjustment. And then, of course, that valuation rethink begins to, to spread. Now it's what is the economic impact of that? And that is what is to come. And like I said, that is what is not yet priced in or only beginning to get priced in. I mean, if you look at auto stocks, GM and Ford, if you look at Home Depot, you look at the home builders, yeah, they've corrected already. They've already begun the adjustment process for the sharp rise in interest rates. They've already repriced. Now, whether the repricing still has further to go, yeah, it probably does, but it's already, a lot of repricing has already taken place. But there's still hopes and wishes that somehow everything is going to be fine and we're going to be able to weather uh, not just this inflation move, uh, but the, the this interest rate move. But it's just not possible. We are a credit-dependent economy, and I've said this a million times. We have credit cycles that ebb and flow with the cost of capital. You cannot not slow down when the cost of capital rises, particularly as sharp as it has. You know, uh, Peter, I'm glad you mentioned credit and credit cycles. I want you to take a moment here uh, to take, take a look at a clip about U.S. Treasuries. Uh, this actually is out today on the Real Vision platform for Essential Plus and Pro subscribers here at Real Vision. Uh, and the host uh, is Harry Melandry hosting Jens Nordvig of Exante Data. Let's take a look at this clip. There is a big constituency in the uh, institutional fixed income management that I think have a hard time essentially de-learning this notion that you never get inflation, right? And, and so, such a good point. 
that Such a, the, we, we have evolutionary deselected. Same as we have, there are no uh, JGB bears left. They were yeah. all deselected by nature. Yeah. Um, in the same way, there are no uh, G7 uh, real money manager bears. It's no. just not. If you were, you were deselected and sacked years ago. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so I think that's that's still that's still the reason why uh, it's hard to get bond yields above three, right? Even though you're saying, okay, if you, if you look at this and you, and you know you can get easily 5% uh, surprise on inflation above target, and then the bond yield is still free. I think that has to do with, with uh, that bid still being there. And the more persistent, uh, I know it's become like a kind of uh, no-no to talk about transitory <laughs> persistent, but no, not like all, the, not the, the longer it's going to last here, uh, this year and, and, and into next year that we have this inflationary pressure and, and overshooting relative to target. Uh, we, we're going to have essentially, we used to have a, we used to talk about inflation premium in the bond market, right? And, and now we've had a couple of years where the, you could read academic papers about a negative inflation premium in the bond market. Like, given that asymmetry I just alluded to, uh, I, I think that's going to be repriced going forward. That's Jens Nordvig and Harry Melandry. By the way, if you're watching on YouTube, these are the kinds of conversations uh, we'd love to have you join us for on the Real Vision platform. Uh, talking of the conversation, Peter, thoughts about U.S. Treasuries and how it ties in with the credit cycle? Well, it's really interesting moment for U.S. Treasuries, uh, not only because of the, the inflation and, and, and growth situation where on one hand, you got the Treasury bulls because they see a recession coming and you got to buy long-term Treasuries. But still, this inflation story that is remaining, I believe, very sticky uh, and still we're running well above nominal rates. But you also have the dynamic of where European bond yields go from here and where they've already gone uh, as an influence in U.S. Treasuries and also, of course, uh, the direction of GGBs where they haven't gone much, much uh, yet in terms of movements because the BOJ has got its foot on the neck of GDP yields, but something that we have to pay attention to. In addition to the Fed walking away to the tune of $95 billion a month, uh, at the same time, foreigners have been reducing their percentage ownership of U.S. Treasuries, and we will soon see whether that is going to be accelerated uh, post the sanctioning of the Bank of Russia. So I, I, I've said for a while that you can't just analyze U.S. growth and inflation and try to figure out where U.S. yields are going to go on the long end. The short end, I think, have priced in these rate hikes. The longer end, uh, there's a lot more going on. Um, where the German 10-year bond yield goes will have a big influence on U.S. Treasuries. Whether the, the BOJ um, finally throws in the towel on yield curve control or at least widens the band because the, the Ministry of Finance and, and, and the Kushida government can't handle uh, further yen weakness will have a big influence on where long-end treasuries go. Uh, so, you know, people tell me, oh, we're going to go into recession by long-term treasuries. I'm like, you got to broaden your analysis here. Uh, there's a lot more of, uh, going on here uh, that needs to be part of this conversation when it comes to trying to figure out where the 10-year yield is going. Yeah, by the way, talking of BOJ, something we haven't yet touched on, uh, Dollar yen, USD JPY, spiking here on the day, over 130 yen weakness, 10 year lows. 20 year lows. 20 year lows. 20 year lows. Uh, it, it's really just 
fascinating and bizarre what's going on with uh, Japan. So yeah. today's Thursday. On Wednesday, you had the prime minister of Japan saying, I am supportive of the BOJ's attempt to get to 2% inflation. At the same time, he and his minister of finance, Suzuki, is saying, we need to be really careful and we need to avoid these sharp moves in the yen. Uh, and he also, Kishida said, at the same time, he says, we need 2% inflation, said, we need to be really careful that we don't have these sharp rises in energy and other inflationary pressures that could hurt the consumer. Is that a contradiction or a paradox? Yeah, that's a, a good question. <laughs> uh, and then you have uh, Kuroda, who keeps pushing the pedal for 2% inflation, and then says uh, that he doesn't like these sharp moves in the yen. So um, there is just this 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 bizarre situation going on where they've reached a point you either accept further yen weakness, possibly to 150, uh, if you still want the Bank of Japan to maintain yield curve control, uh, or he widens that band, and then we have a potential major earthquake through the world's bond markets if he does, but then he can at least stem the rise in the yen and control the spike in, in uh, imported inflation, particularly energy. And we are reaching towards this, this fork in the road, we're probably at that fork in the road, as the BOJ and the Minister of Finance go to loggerheads here. And uh, now, the BOJ is 10 years into this, we want 2% inflation. It's not like they just started to try. So Kuroda, if he was in the private sector, would have been fired many years ago. But because he's a government bureaucrat, uh, you know, their response is, if what you're doing doesn't work, just keep doing more of it. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, Peter, I want to hit some questions. I know we don't have a ton of time here, but let's do a quick speed round to get in some of these questions from uh, from Real Vision subscribers and viewers. Uh, the first one comes to us from Jazz. This is from the Real Vision site. Uh, companies are going up on weak quarters and guidance is a signal of what exactly? Well, that 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 earnings story is going to start to falter, and that we've that Q4 was probably peak profit margins. Q1, we're seeing a, 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 a bit of a reduction, and that profit margin squeeze is going to continue as um, the year progresses. It'll mostly be felt initially with small, medium-sized businesses, bigger companies, at least right now, will be able to maintain as much as they can. Uh, and, I, and I think it also gets into the, the broader inflation story, because companies that have had a squeeze in margins up to this point are going to still try to recapture those lost margins as the year progresses. You take Kimberly Clark, for example, and I've used them as an example um, before, is that when you see a very sharp increase in your cost structure, whether that's labor, shipping, raw materials, packaging, you, you can't pass that on to the consumer all at once. You have to absorb a lot of it and sort of recapture it over time so you don't shock the consumer. 
You, you don't call up Walmart and say, my cost just went up 30 percent, and I'm raising the cost of tissues, diapers, and toilet paper by 30 percent. No, you spread that out over time to recapture those lost margins. But there's going to be a margin hit, and we'll see how much the consumer is willing to tolerate you as a company trying to recapture that lost margin on the back of me. So I, I do expect that this, this earning story is going to start to get impacted. Uh, you'll see slower revenue growth for those businesses that do, uh, that, that do business in Europe, certainly in Asia because of China. And um, anybody, anything that's consumer-related that hasn't gotten a hit yet, I have to believe it will at some point in Q2 or Q, uh, Q3 or Q4. Uh, we're going to run a few extra minutes here. Obviously, lots to cover, lots happening right now. Do we want to do a, a real-time dissection here on Amazon? What do you think? So, like I said, they're in the retail business. That means they're subject to inflationary pressures, labor cost pressures, and transportation cost pressures. It's Yeah, it's Amazon, but they're still in the retail business. And they pretty much cited that. And I see, see a headline, working through inflationary and supply chain pressures. So they're a retailer subject to the same thing that everybody else is in that business. Looks like the AWS business did beat, which is not surprising, uh, considering what Microsoft said. But retail is a competitive, lower margin business, and Amazon just reminded everybody of that. It looks like uh, it looks like it's basically a, a hit on on revenue. It looks like 16, uh, 116 uh, spot 44 billion uh, versus 116 spot 3 billion expected. So uh, you know, basically on target, a slight beat there on the revenue uh, top line number. And then next, we'll see what Apple has to say. Uh, and, and obviously, most relevant will be their China business and their product sourcing and availability uh, will be obviously in question. And what they have to say about the European consumer, uh, that will be interesting since they obviously do huge business there as well. Yeah, what are your thoughts about what's happening in Europe? We actually had uh, a question coming to us uh, from Ralph Humphrey about what was happening in Europe, uh, the relative positioning and strength of European economies. What are you thinking about in Europe right now? Well, let's take natural gas prices. If you uh, sort of norm, uh, you you equate it on an equal basis to where how the U.S. prices it, uh, it's trading at about thirty dollars per million BTU, where U.S. natural gas prices are call it around six-ish. So they're paying about five times higher natural gas prices on top of much higher gasoline prices, which they always do because of taxes, but you know even more so now. Uh, so Europe is going to be um, in a recession. I see Apple blew away the revenue number. I didn't see their EPS number. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, the breakdown of that and how much was pulled forward. But that should be interesting. So it's, um, I, I, I'm concerned about Europe. I mean, and, and also the monetary tightening that, that, that has happened in terms of the markets adjustment and uh, what's to come with, I mean, the ECB is still doing QE. That's going to end in a, in a couple months, but they're still doing QE, and uh, but they still they may actually get out of negative interest rates uh, by year end. Yeah, two Q uh, revenue. Apple. Um, it just flipped on my screen here. We're literally getting these as, as news flashes, uh, but it looks like uh, it looks like a beat. Yeah, and it'll we're curious to see uh, what what the, what the guidance is. Yeah. Um, while we're waiting for that. Um, 
Let me just hit a question here. This one comes to us from Tim Long Island uh, from the Real Vision website. Uh, and the question is, uh, thoughts on the HYG, this is high-grade uh, junk bond market, uh, where we can see this drop coming in recent days. Let, let me just paraphrase this question to simplify it. What are your thoughts on what's happening uh, in high yield right now? So no doubt in, in corporate credit that that should be the, the biggest focus and the biggest concern. And yeah. something that I am also watching closely every single day, yeah. particularly the, the triple C category of high yields. Now, yeah. HYG has definitely softened. This is the iShares box high yield corporate bond ETF. Right. And what's keeping it actually from softening some more is it actually has energy companies in there that have done well. But if you if you look at just the broader triple C category of high yield, since that is the lowest rung of high yield before you get to D for default. Uh, the yield, we're called the cost of capital, is now uh, at 10%, which is you know the highest level we've seen in, in, in a few years. And its spread to treasuries has widened out. Amazingly, though, it hasn't widened out that much to where it was pre-COVID. So that tells me that there's a lot more weakness to come. And I think the reason why it hasn't weakened further is because there's still the belief that the U.S. economy can weather what is going on. Um, but I do expect breakage there uh, as, as, as growth slows. Um, but it's an important thing that people should be watching every single day to sort of gauge the market's perception of where growth will be in Q2, Q3. Hey, Peter, some Apple numbers coming to me uh, from our producer, Brian, right now. Let me just read them to you off the screen. Uh, you tell me what you think. EPS, this is earnings per share, uh, $1.52 versus $1.43 estimate. Obviously, that's a beat. Revenue, $97.3 billion uh, or thereabouts versus $93.9 billion estimated, up 8.6% uh, roughly year over year. Thoughts? Well, I, I would have actually, with that revenue beat of four billion plus, I would have thought that maybe EPS would have beaten more. So I want to see what their what their gross margin uh, was quarter over quarter. Uh, but even with Apple, you talked about you know eight percent revenue growth. It's a stock that's trading at twenty seven times earnings. Uh, twenty seven times is is expensive for a company that is only seeing modest uh, growth, particularly EPS growth. And um, again, we'll see what, what guidance is in terms of their China business, see what they say about the U.S. consumer and the European consumer, as I mentioned. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's still an iPhone company, even though they're obviously growing up, growing out their services business and some yeah. other. And the, the, the hey, Peter, to that point, business. let me read you these numbers because these yeah. are really interesting. iPhone revenue, 50.57 billion, 50 billion versus 47.88 billion estimate. It's a beat up 5.5% year on year. This is the number uh, that really uh, jumped out at me precisely to your point. Services revenue, 19 spot 82 billion uh, versus 19 spot 72 billion estimate. But here's the really interesting part on a year over year basis up. 17 spot 28%, these numbers per CNBC. Uh, Peter, thoughts, impressive, impressive year-over-year -year performance on services revenue. Yeah, that's where their growth is. I mean, yeah. cell phones, as you said, is only a 5%. I mean, the cell phone industry, the, the smartphone industry is just a, a replacement business right now. It, it's right. almost like the TV set business. Uh, you know, how, you, you, you replace a TV every bunch of years, because uh, maybe there's a slight change. That's reached a point where 
incremental changes aren't that much. And that essentially is what the smartphone industry is right now. And that's why you're only seeing modest growth uh, for that. But yeah, the services business and other uh, areas like wearables will see the faster growth. Uh, I'm curious to see what their PC business is because uh, we had a lot of pull forward of PC sales over the last couple of years as more people work from home. Here, I can give it to you right now. Uh, yeah. It's Mac revenue, 10 spot, 4.4 billion versus 9.25 billion. Estimate up 14 spot, 7.3% year over year, Peter. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an impressive quarter. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I just wonder how much is left uh, considering how much people have spent on their um, PCs over the last and laptops to uh, work from home over the last couple of years. Looks like after hours trading up, uh, about two spot three two percent. Uh, last trade on my screen one seventy six one sixty seven spot forty three on Apple. Obviously, uh, great day to be here talking about this with you. So much happening as we come to the conclusion of this conversation, Peter. Final thoughts, key takeaways. Obviously, a rich conversation. How do you distill it? How do you break it down? I, I think that this challenging investing environment is going to be with us, uh, but there are a few a few things that we're gleaning. Value stocks are outperforming growth uh, as investors are uh, much more valuation sensitive, and I expect that to continue. Uh, we've had a little pullback here in commodities, but I would be buying on them on pullbacks, particularly energy and the metals, uh, the uranium stocks, um, the ag stocks. I, I, I keep a close eye on I was long fertilizers for a while, but recently trimmed them. But um, I, I think we're we're going to be surprised at where commodity prices go because the supply side is so crimped, even if we get this faltering demand. Uh, and, and I just think that 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 humility is going to be a, a very important part of, of, of one's investing process. Now, it always should be, but even more so now as people are losing money in both stocks and in bonds. Uh, so just losing less is is an achievement. Uh, right now in this market. And um, I think people should just rein in their risk tolerance. Yeah, very well said, very elegantly framed and summed up. Uh, Peter, always a pleasure to have you with us, but especially great to have you today. Obviously, so much happening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ash. Always fun, and I enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'll be back tomorrow with Ral. That's right, CEO Ral Pal and I will have our Real Vision Daily Briefing Friday conversation tomorrow. In the meantime, go check out Real Vision's newest podcast, The Next Big Trade with Harry Melandri. On tomorrow's new episode, renowned trader and climate activist Ross Gerber joins Harry to break down Tesla. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much. Welcome to the next big trade. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. My next big trade is Tesla and Tesla being the king of the climate change impactful companies that an investor can invest in and think about over the next decade what they will hopefully accomplish will, will be monumental and probably even be bigger than what Apple has accomplished. Yeah, my forecasts are not going to change whether the Green Deal gets approved or doesn't get approved. If you don't have a planet, you won't care who invades who. It's completely irrelevant. The bond market has two jobs. All they need to do is future inflation and future growth. That's it. So when you've got only got two variables to look at, you're most likely that the outcome of the hive mind of bond investors 
are going to reach the right kind of consensus. I've only seen consensus wrong once in my entire career, and that was 1994, when the bond market blew up. Other than that, the bond consensus has always been right. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.